Happy 10-year anniversary to Veganuary. On this week's show, we'll be reviewing their new short film, It'll Never Catch On. But also, we want to know... If it's time for veganism to become a protected belief in Canada. Shall we give the meat industry another £4 million in subsidies? And is Anthony finally going to be able to get some plant-based vegan gel nails? Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Anthony. I'm Richard and this is episode 14 of Vegan Week. Thanks for joining us for episode 14 of Vegan Week, produced in partnership with Fire and Flow Coffee. If you love great coffee, want to spend your money with a vegan business and love a cheeky discount, head over to fireandflowcoffee.co.uk, enter Falafel10, that's Falafel10, at the checkout, and you'll get yourself a sweet 10% off your order. Richard, welcome back. We missed you. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. I missed you too. It felt very strange last week not talking to a microphone. It felt like someone, something was missing. You could have still done it. There was nothing stopping you. I don't know. You know, I feel like maybe I could walk to do my grocery shopping with a microphone. And if anyone asks, say, sorry, I'm talking to the microphone. I think they would have said, don't worry. Don't mind him. It's just Richard. They would have understood. Yeah. I'm talking to yeah. myself. But I want to record it. Anyway, Anthony. Mm. What have we got coming up this week? Well, some of you may be joining us to hear our review of Veganuary's new short film to celebrate their 10th birthday. It's called It'll Never Catch On. Now, this will form our main discussion topic for the episode, and as such, we'll be featuring it in the second half of the show. Yes, but in every episode of Vegan Week, we always make the first section of our show a rundown and commentary of our top 10 vegan news stories from the week. Right, enough of the falafel. It's vegan news time. Right, as always we have 10 stories from this week's news, all of which relate to veganism, animal rights and outcomes for animals. Which one shall we start with, Anthony? Well, it can only be one story. Sad news, I'm afraid. It's, it's been widely reported, probably because of the celebrity interest, I imagine. From the BBC, Heather Mills's vegan food company goes into administration. So this is the news that Heather Mills's vegan food business, V-Bites, has gone into administration this week after being hit by rising costs. Ms Mills said that she was devastated by the collapse and paid tribute to her team, who she said had put blood, sweat and tears into the business over 30 years. Now, the company was founded in 1993 as Redwood Whole Foods. It was bought by Ms Mills, the former wife of Sir Paul McCartney, in 2009, and subsequently rebranded as V-Bytes. She said she'd personally invested tens of millions of pounds into the business and offered every solution she could feasibly find to keep it going. But sadly, hers and her staff's efforts have been thwarted, in her words. Administrators from Interpath Advisory were appointed on Monday after talks to raise new funding for V-Bytes had collapsed. Now, James Clark, Joint Administrator and Managing Director at Interpath Advisory, said... V-Bites is one of the UK's leading manufacturers of vegan food products, but unfortunately, and in common with many other companies across the food manufacturing sector, had seen trading impacted by rising commodity and energy prices. I mean, that's that's my first thought on this one, Richard, is, is the fact that it's across the board in food manufacturing. We're seeing this 
happening to companies. It's not necessarily because the vegan bubble has burst, although that's what a lot of news outlets are inferring from this, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's difficult for companies to really increase the price to adjust for the cost of inflation or, or well, more than inflation, the price they're paying for the, the energy and the price they're paying for the prime materials. So no one will will buy or not many people will spend a very high percentage or a, an increase, a high percentage increase of price for for something. I mean, when you think about it, if you want to be on burger, would you pay eight pounds for the on burger? And it's the same. At some point, you need to pass on the costs. And I know this is not featured, but on the other hand, you know, there's so much competitiveness in this area at the moment. There's so many other brands and non-vegan brands doing plant-based um, products that it's a very tough it's a very tough environment at the moment yeah i mean i remember redwood whole foods and um, back from my my early days of being vegan and i, I don't know whether in a sense v bites might have fallen foul of, of being a bit more old school than some of the the new kids on the block who are, have got a lot of momentum going that you know they're new and they're flashy and they're, they're going for a really contemporary feel in a sense maybe v bites is earlier success might have made them be a bit complacent not not adapt quite as quickly with with like you say the huge influx i mean in a sense i I feel like there's just been a bit of inevitability about the fact that a few companies are going to fall off the the wagon with the huge surge of interest in vegan food that we've seen over the last five years but i mean it's important to remember this is v-bytes going into administration it does not mean the company has has closed has ceased trading and in fact though it's awful that they've They've um, laid off 25 staff. That is just a third of their workforce. So two thirds of their workforce is still working for them. They're still trading, but it's, it's obviously a big blow. Yeah, and the same happened with Meadless Farm. Must have been about six months ago. They also went into administration, although they were bought by another company. I think it was... VFC, was it? Yeah, VFC, that's it. Yeah, well, nice little link to our main discussion for uh, Veganuary because they're owned or started by the same person aren't they anyway we're segueing nicely there let's let's hope we hear good news from v-bytes at some point in 2024 let's move on rich we've got a couple of stories that are follow-up from stories we featured in earlier episodes of the pod is that right yes and both from yes farming uk firstly this one activists launch new attempt to put end to fast-growing broiler chickens A legal challenge over the use of fast-growing broiler chickens will return to court in April 2024 after a previous attempt failed. The Chicken Welfare Court case will take place on 23 or 24th of April 2024, according to Humane League UK, which led the last attempt. The charity argues that the use of conventional meat chicken breeds, which grow unnaturally large and unnaturally fast, breaches welfare regulations. As we reported a few months ago, the Humane League UK lost its initial case in the High Court earlier this year. However, the charity was granted an appeal with the Lord Justice saying, there is a legitimate argument which needs to be considered by the court. The RSPCA will rejoin the appeal in April as an intervener, providing evidence about the lives of fast-growing chickens Sean Gifford, 
Managing Director of Humane League UK said next April we will make our case that these frail birds are illegal under UK law. Wow. Do, what do you think about this? Do you think there's any chance that this will go ahead or will have a positive outcome? Or you think it's just a case that they'll just shut it down? I mean, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know how easy it is for cases like this and appeals like this to be brought to court. I would have thought that they would be keen not to waste court time. And so I would have thought the fact that this has been brought up again and the fact that there's an appeal that's going through, I'm I'm encouraged by that. Um, whether it's successful this time or whether it needs more pressure and, uh, you know, change being slow is infuriating. But the fact is that social change is slow. So we need to just get used to that and get over it. Um, but I'm encouraged by the fact that this this keeps rearing its head. It keeps coming back. It might be that there's just a, a loophole in the court system that means a few people can object and then there's another hearing. But I, I kind of feel like that's not the case. So I'm encouraged that ultimately, you know, let's say by the end of my lifetime, this practice will be illegal. Obviously, you want it to be sooner rather than later. But I can't give much more insight than that. I, I, I don't know whether you have any I hope inclination. It's, I hope it's to sooner than that. <laughs> Gosh, well, me, me too. But I, you, you're going to live a long life, so no, we want to see it before that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I'm confident that the fact that we keep having this contested in court means that it's a contentious issue and, and ultimately it's on the way out. But what we what we can't say for sure is is how soon it will happen. And I think that the, the, the crucial thing here, and I think probably you and I are of the same opinion here, is that this is not going to stop people eating chicken. This is a kind of a welfareist debate and it's kind of saying, oh, well, it's okay if we do it like this. Whereas from a vegan perspective, you'd be saying, well, no, it's not okay no matter how you do it. I still think it's important that these things are debated. It brings the issues up and it highlights the fact that grotesque things are going on in these industries. So so good on the Humane League and, the, and to a lesser degree, the RSPCA for, for being involved in it. But I guess we've got to wait till Easter to see to see what's going to happen, really, don't we? Yes, I think in this case, it, it would be interesting to know, or, or we might see it, you never know. But if, if it goes ahead, does this open the door to other species and other industries within the meat industry? Uh, will they have to make changes? I think probably all these things will be taken into account when, you know, judging what needs to happen. I'm not saying that judges will not do the best job available and they'll do whatever it's within the law. But obviously, if this goes ahead, so many other industries will be under the, the microscope to what happened. I think it's just a case of highlighting things that are horrific and surprise people. And one that I think I'm surprised by how little coverage it gets is how young animals are when they're slaughtered for meat, that the percentage of their natural lifespan that is taken away from them is generally like 90, 95% of their natural lifespan is, is taken from them because obviously as soon as they're a, a decent size, the meat industry kills them. I think cases like this draw stuff like that to our attention and and one day there'll be enough, enough attention drawn to these things that a critical mass of people decide not to do it. And and this is probably a, a really important stepping stone, but it is just a stepping stone. It's not the the end in itself. But yeah, fingers crossed and we'll, we'll report on any, any developments on the legal case in spring 24. 
Now, for a second piece of news from our favourite, Farming UK, following up from a story we covered, ooh, I want to say episode two or three back in September. New £4 million fund to boost England's shrinking small abattoir network. A £4 million DEFRA fund has launched seeking to boost the sustainability and efficiency of small abattoirs amid fears over a huge decline in numbers. The Smaller Abattoir Fund will award capital grants from £2,000 to a maximum of £60,000 to help support smaller abattoirs in England. The funds can be used to boost productivity, enhance animal welfare, add value to primary products and encourage innovation in new technologies the story says. Now, this fund comes off the back of the report that if closures continued at the current rate, there would be no small abattoirs left open by 2030, according to campaigners at the Sustainable Food Trust. Announcing the fund, Farming Minister Mark Spencer said, England's abattoirs are critical to livestock farmers who provide their high-quality products to local butchers and farm shops up and down the country. The articles report that the fund can be used to advance animal health and welfare standards, including funding to improve facilities for stressed or fatigued animals to recover from loading and transport operations. I mean, where do you want to start with this one, Rich? Because that those last couple of sentences made me quite cross. But the, or we could talk about the, the story in general. The first thing that comes to mind is probably if the government is spending money this way, the next thing you'll know is we'll all get a grant in cash to use money to burn it on our chimneys, you know, for the cost of energy <laughs> and all this. I mean, is there any difference? But, I mean, it's very, it's very sad news that declining industry that's polluting our planet, not a healthy one because obviously the best uh, diet is a whole food plant-based diet and the animal suffering that involves gets even more subsidised. I think what this highlights is that really it's a declining industry. This money could have been spent to encourage these industries to find an alternative way of living yeah absolutely it it strikes me that there are so many contradictions in this story you hear vegan food is more expensive and yet we we see how many subsidies are just awarded to farms and then this is basically further subsidizing an industry isn't it, it it's saying you're not making enough profits to invest in this technology yourself so we'll give you the money to invest in it so there's that contradiction then there's the contradiction saying that this will help advance animal health and welfare standards and help help stressed or fatigued animals just before they're about to be killed like what, what are you talking about it, it really maddens me this sort of false care this false sense of oh we really care about animal welfare and and oh are they stressed oh are they tired oh come come here into this this special building that we've put for you for all the stressed animals it's like you're about to kill them like what 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 are you doing i don't know i mean obviously i'm not a farmer and i don't work in a slaughterhouse i don't fully understand the ins and outs of these things but um lots lots of contradictions from where i'm sitting anyway yeah i mean they have these workers uh, may have a genuine worry about what's going to happen to their workplace what's going to happen to their jobs and this will happen in one year in five years or in 10 years so we should start planning ahead as a government as society to help these people that will be in need to find other means of um, making a living and that money could be 
could have been spent just to helping them, creating other jobs with education, with whatever they need or can help them move forward to a different industry. Seriously, that's really, really annoying. Could, could I just come in with one one last little point here, Rich? I, I think yeah. my, my silver lining for this story is the fact that it highlights the fact that these industries aren't how they are depicted in films, on television, in, in children's storybooks, in cartoons. You know, that the number of small abattoirs, small slaughterhouses in this country is basically none. It's basically zero. They're all huge places. Animals have to travel huge distances to get there. This idea that an animal grows up in a field is killed in the shed and is served up on your plate. It's, it's nonsense. You know, that they are trafficked tens hundreds of miles sometimes and I, I i think the more that we can get that message through to people the the better our our cause is going to do i think absolutely okay now we've got a few more stories from uk animal agriculture but let's come back to them and have a little travel around the world first anthony you're taking us to canada next yeah, let's get cross about a story from a different part of the world. <laughs> so this is from Animal Justice. Vegan firefighter loses groundbreaking discrimination case. In a surprising and troubling decision, the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario has ruled against Adam Knauf, a firefighter who made global headlines for filing a legal case after he faced discrimination for being vegan. Now, the case raised a novel issue for Canadians anyway, as to whether a vegan belief system counts as a creed, which is a protected a protected ground under the Ontario Human Rights Code. Now, listeners in the UK might be thinking, well, hang on, I thought, I thought that was already protected. It has been a protected belief in the UK since 2020, but not quite in Canada yet. Mr Knauf plans to appeal the decision by seeking judicial review in the Divisional Court of Ontario. Now, Mr Knauf is a veteran of Ontario's Provincial Forest Firefighting Forest Firefighting Force. It's a bit of a mouth, bit of a mouthful. Um, and he has been vegan for over 25 years to avoid harming animals. He sued his employer after being denied appropriate food whilst working in British Columbia in 2017, fighting wildfires. Now, despite working long hours in a physically demanding condition, Mr. Knauf faced a severe lack of vegan food in the base camp where he was stationed. He was frequently served meals that contained meat or dairy, also meals that were nutritionally inadequate, containing no source of protein, apparently, although there was, there was probably some, but maybe not enough. Um, sometimes he was even given no food at all, according to reports. He repeatedly attempted to work with management to improve the situation, but it didn't improve, and after expressing his frustration that he couldn't eat, he was sent home, disciplined, and suspended without pay for a period of time. Now, interestingly and slightly confusingly to finish, ethical veganism is a protected belief under the freedom of conscience provision in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but for whatever reason, this hasn't quite been translated into action here. It's an interesting one, this, Rich, isn't it? In, in that there, there seems to be a, an odd loophole, but I mean, the bottom line is someone's working their guts off to, to fight forest fires, like, give them some decent food. I know, I feel devastated by, for Mr. Nauf. I mean, fighting all, all the fires, and that was all over the media, the, the incredible extent of those fires, and not given suitable food. I mean, I can't believe it. It is quite a sad story, and, and I still don't believe that 
how they can suspend someone from employment because of that, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, very often social change happens through loud, well-known injustices, and, and hopefully this will be one of them that, that changes things, but it, it's such a shame it it has to, in you know, somebody has to endure some suffering and, and actually kick up a stink, because I was looking at this and I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm quite polite and uh, mild-mannered and I don't like to cause a fuss. I, I could just imagine being in this situation myself and saying, oh, oh, never mind, I, I'll, you know, I'll just bring in my own sandwiches or, or, or whatever, you know, I, I don't like to cause a fuss in many ways, but it shows that actually sometimes we have to, to, to make change happen, doesn't it? Yes, and let's hope the appeal wins. Here, here, and uh, obviously we'll report on it if we uh, if we pick up some more news once once the appeal happens. Let's move to Spain now, and of course we have to have Richard featuring this one. Richard, yes, from the Olive Press, Spanish resort bans horse-drawn carriages for tourists in win for animal rights groups. A Mallorcan town has decided to ban horse-drawn carriages in a historic move for animal rights. The measures will put an end to the suffering of animals by replacing horse-drawn carriages with electric-powered vehicles. The proposal received unanimous approval at the council meeting on Tuesday, December the 12th. The bylaw amendment is the result of years of campaigning by residents, tourists and animal rights groups. Even carriage drivers are backing the motion and will pay for the new vehicles themselves. The two politicians behind the law are Unió per Alcudia councillor Azahara Machado and Guillermo Amengual, president of the Progreso en Verde, an animal rights party. He said, We want to thank everyone for moving towards a society more empathetic to animals. The changes are expected to be in effect by the end of summer 2024. Anthony, it's a bit surprising, right, that it's taken so long to uh, ban horse carriages in the tourist sector in Spain, but I guess it's a win. Yeah, I, I, I think so too, and the, these things will, will always lag behind when we would like them, I, I would say, because, you know, they're a, they're a way of making money and... You know, commodifying animals doesn't doesn't seem to stop people to want to do that. But it's it's great news. I wonder. Just I, I know you're not an expert on everything Spanish, but do you think this is part of a, a wave of animal rights progress in Spain? We've seen big law changes in the last few months there, or is this just a coincidence? I mean, it's been growing. It's been growing. The the amount of people that are supporting campaigns or are switching to more ethical way of living, but there's a lot of work to do. Uh, I would see this as not an isolated thing, but certainly a one-off, if you know what I mean. I mean, they're campaigning to get rid of the octopus farm, but the culture is not as empathetic towards animals as other places. I mean, UK is an example, or Germany could be an example. We're still a bit behind in terms of empathy or just recognizing that animals are sentient beings i've got to say it it really struck me the the benefit of having animal rights parties because the the story does cite that two animal rights party politicians helped push this through and i've got to say up until now i've been quite skeptical of of you know what's the point of having animal rights party 
politicians because we do have them in this country and you know I kind of think well they're never going to get elected what's the point but actually in terms of campaigning and raising awareness of things they do have a role to play even if they're not going to become the president or the prime minister you know they, they have a role to play still don't they yes and especially in countries where there's not a binary election I mean if you have to agree with the parties on the laws that are being passed if you have to ally yourself with another party and they might only have four or five or six seats but they might be able to push some laws in order for the bigger party to pass the laws they want so mm, yeah that's an interesting Just thing one, of some countries one little quick thing that i noted in this story that seemed a bit harsh to finish off with it said that the carriage drivers are paying for these changes themselves i mean obviously i'm, I'm not on the side of people who exploit animals for money but it, it did seem a bit harsh that the the rules changed and the, the people need to pay for their own carriages or maybe i'm still um still in the lag of the south korean dog farmers where they were being paid off by the government to to change their practices who knows don't know what the right thing to do is there that's because you live in the uk in other countries (laughs) and spain is an example when the law changes it's up to you to stick with the law i remember many years ago when they banned smoking or they tried to ban ban smoking in restaurants they said okay if you want you can have a smoking room and a smoke free room but everyone had to put money I mean, the the restaurants or the bars or the pubs had to pay to create partitions. And two years later, the ban- they just said, let's ban it all together. So they had to put money again to <laughs> get rid of the, the barriers that they had put. So yeah, in some countries, it's all up to the company or the person to comply with the law, no matter how it costs. Indeed, the, uh, the perils of liberalism. Let's come back to the UK now. And here's a headline that won't surprise you, but might make you wonder why Farming UK have even bothered to feature it. Yeah, it is a puzzle. This one is from our favourite, Farming UK. The headline, Most Brits Want Christmas Classics Over Vegan Choices, Paul says. 64% of people said tradition was the most important factor when planning their Christmas dinner. The new poll was conducted by rural insurer NFU Mutual. So 64% of people said tradition was the most important factor and 74% said that roast potatoes were essential to the plate. More numbers in this study, just so you've got a bit of context, they were saying the essential components of a Christmas dinner. So 58% said gravy, 45% pigs in blankets, 37% farm-reared turkey, 37% Brussels sprouts and just 4% said a vegan nut roast was essential now in a sense it's it's a bit of a pointless article you might wonder why we're covering it what caught my interest is why in the headline a farming uk saying oh most brits want christmas classics they don't want vegan things you kind of think well i don't know about you rich but like that's obvious isn't it there's far more people who are going to be eating meat this this year than eating vegan food and it, it just makes me think well why are they even reporting this? Are they really so triggered by veganism? Are they really so worried that they need to to publish this headline? It's it staggered me. I really don't understand the point of this article. Yeah, I mean, of course, out of all the population, unfortunately, veganism, uh, although is it, it is on the rise, I mean, we still a small portion. So obviously, there will be more people that go for traditional let's say type of food and 
will eat meat, but it's... I mean, you could this do this with anything. I mean, will you be buying guns this Christmas? Will, be, <laughs> will you be using guns? Uh, 99% of people say, you know, they prefer not using guns for Christmas. Well, that's logical. Not everyone but will, But that's, that's a really have. good example. That's a really good example, because if that headline was done, you'd be thinking... Oh well, maybe maybe I should be getting a gun then. Actually, like if they're even mentioning it, it kind of suggests it's a threat. And I th- I think that I think this headline is their own undoing here, because like no one's going to question that more people are having non-vegan food. I would object to the story in one way though, in that they're saying more people want meat than want vegan food. Well, actually, the top thing was roast potato, which is seventy-four percent. Well, that is vegan. You know, and gravy, 58%. Gravy is can be vegan. Brussels sprouts are vegan. And actually, 4% of people are saying nut roast. Well, I wouldn't say a nut roast is essential to my Christmas dinner. What's essential to my Christmas dinner is no animals have been exploited. I'm not particularly bothered whether I eat nut roast or not. And actually, we heard a story last week saying that 25% of people will be preparing either vegan or vegetarian meals this Christmas. So the numbers are much higher than 4%, and they're kind of conflating nut roasts with veganism. But either way, I, I think they're scared. <laughs> that's that's what it says to me. Yeah, they are scared, and we need to understand that what they want is reassure their readers that they can eat meat, and uh, Farming UK is a great publication. It must and be. They get enough press from us. They get a lot of press from us, but they're targeting a specific type of uh, customer that probably will enjoy reading this article. So I do understand why from their perspective. I mean, this is not... Not many vegans will probably read this article, but <laughs> hey, you never know. We've been reading it, so... Yeah, well, oh. I, I, I honestly think it's a win. I honestly think it's a win reading this. It, it, it shows that they're scared of us, that they're even bringing us into the debate. Like, no, no vegan is going to say that more people want to eat vegan this christmas we know that we're in the minority so i no, i think it's a win that they're 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 bringing us up at all we're living rent free in their heads let's move on now <laughs> one last story from farming uk now then i promise we're done bit of a different one this one richard yes the headline reads concern as magpie removed from wales 2024 general licenses so from the next year it will be an offence for Welsh farmers and land managers to control magpies from the new year in Wales. A review of general licences has confirmed. Now, this comes as Natural Resources Wales has published its general licences for wild bird control for 2024. The most significant change is that in the new year it will be an offence to kill magpies. Unfortunately, the following species will still be able to be killed if farmers deem that they are a threat to their work. Canada goose, carrion crow, feral pigeon, jackdaw and wood pigeon. Magpies have been removed due to the conservation status changing from green to amber. The species population in Wales has decreased by between 25 and 50% in the last 25 years. Critics at the Countryside Alliance have said that the removal of magpie from the list will inevitably result in damage to both livestock and crops, which will be detrimental to the welfare of livestock and cause economic harm to farmers. Okay, where do I start, Anthony? So, 
Um, <laughs> are magpies a threat to you? Do you, on your day-to-day well, -day basis, I mean, do they jump, <laughs> do they harass you? Do they, um, I don't know, do they start killing cows? Do you understand this? Or, or is it me yeah. being a bit, a bit sarcastic? Well, I mean, you're always sarcastic, but that's why we love you. But I, I, I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, we are not arable farmers, we're not animal farmers, and so we don't know for sure what threats these animals are, are, are providing to the, the products that farmers are trying to grow. But I, I can't see how it's affecting animals. I really don't understand how a sheep or a cow is being bothered by a magpie or a wood pigeon is on the list. Like you can kill a wood pigeon as a farmer if it's if it's bothering a cow. Like what? 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 What world are we living in? That that just seems completely backwards. And let me say one you know, thing. Let me say one Please thing. Do. Sorry to stop you, but I have to say it. Do you think if we ask a cow that's in a factory farm, who's your biggest threat? The cow will say, "Oh, it's the magpie." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, this is it. And and you know, I I work in a piece of land that is next to an allotment, and the allotment holders understand that what they are growing they're going to be able to eat some of it but also the birds are going to eat some of it and i'm, I'm not being funny i'm not i've got no problem with humans eating too much food for themselves or whatever but you never see an obese wood pigeon or magpie like they're only eating as much as they need aren't they it's not like they're going to eat a whole field's worth and of, of course you know i've I've done jobs where there are factors that interfere with what you're trying to do. And I, I do sympathise with, you know, an arable farmer trying to grow crops, you know, worrying that, oh gosh, this proportion of my crops has been eaten by magpies or whatever. Now I'm going to make less money. I'm not going to be able to put food on my own table here. But I I, I think the fact that that they can just shoot this long list of birds is is obscene and, you know, Good for magpies that they're off the list in in Wales for next year. It's a small victory, but um, you know we'll take what we can get, I suppose. Yes, I mean let, let's let's get away from farming UK now and head somewhere completely different uh, to the Cordon Bleu School of Cooking. In fact, yes, from thecaterer.com, Le Cordon Bleu expands plant-based teaching offering. So Le Cordon Bleu Cookery School in London has expanded its plant-based teaching offering amid calls for more training for vegan chefs from the industry. Now, the expansion in plant-based teaching comes after Alexia Delacca-Mignot, head chef of Studio Gautier in London's Tottenham Court Road, told the caterer, there is not enough training for vegan chefs, in my opinion. When you go to school, they teach you how to prep meat or fish. We had a student who worked with us in our plant-based kitchen and we were teaching her how to do everything from start to finish. But when she was going to school, she had to do a cut of lamb. Now, in this change, students will have access to chef demonstrations, practical sessions, workshops and lectures from chefs such as Venerable Biop Song as part of the Institute's partnership with the Korean Culture Centre UK. The intakes for Cordon Bleu's cuisine course, for anyone who's interested, are in the autumn and spring, whilst those for patisserie are in winter and summer. I've got to say, Rich, I thought this was great news because I think there's probably a misconception that... You can do certain types of vegan food, but there are certain types of vegan food you can't do. And real high-end stuff, I think a lot of people would think, no, 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 you can't do that. But you really can, and Le Cordon Bleu is a, a great example of that. So great to see they're championing plant-based cuisine, or, or, or at least starting to try and do so. 
Yes, and I think it shows uh, people that it it's actually it's not that difficult. Uh, everyone can do it. Everyone can learn. It's it's a skill that it it's you don't need the masters, you know, to to cook plant based, and you can do incredible things just with um, a few lessons. You know, you learn a little. So this is great news. This is great news. Absolutely, and you know, for anyone who's who's searching for for real high-end plant-based stuff it is out there i mean from personal experience number 12 in nottingham is incredible and yeah alexi gautier has got two or three places in london showcasing real high-end stuff so if you want to give it a go in this country they'd be my top tips but anyway we should probably move on before i start and, giving a vegan travelogue yeah and let me say i love 222 in london they're really good yes 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 Okay, let's move on then. We've just got one study this week and let's feature it now. It's our penultimate story of the week. Yes, from Medical News Today, vegan versus omnivores diet. Which is more effective for weight loss? Research published in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition indicates that the vegan diet may have a more significant effect on weight loss for individuals who are, quote, overweight than omnivorous diet. It also concludes that the quality of such diet makes a difference when it comes to how much weight is lost. 223 participants who followed the vegan diet lost an average of 5.9 kilograms over 16 weeks, irrespective of diet quality. Those not following a vegan diet did not lose weight. This study confirmed some things that we already know, said Sarah Harrington of Alchemy Training and Nutrition, who was not involved in the study. The study observed that the whole grain and legumes were associated with weight loss in the vegan group, while meat, vegetable oils and sweets were linked to weight gain. Harrington also suggested that people in the vegan group may have reduced their caloric intake due to simply being unsure of what to eat rather than due to the quality of their food items. Anthony, whilst one study can't prove causation by itself, the study seems to indicate a strong link here, right? Yeah, it does. And I I, I was encouraged by the fact actually that they kind of didn't vet people's diets or they they didn't control what kind of a vegan diet people followed. They just kind of let people eat things and actually it's obviously great that we've got this example of a whole food plant-based diet that that can you know cure all these ills and is is fantastic but actually what I liked about this study is it's saying actually even if you just have a moderately healthy vegan diet it can still help you achieve certain health goals if indeed losing weight if you're if you're quote overweight in the first place is, is a problem for you so that that was encouraging um obviously i think you'd probably say the same rich i'm, I'm a little wary of veganism being portrayed as this this fix all and it will just oh quickly sort your your diet out or your weight out or whatever that i'm not so keen on but you know it's another another one to to rack up as um as positive evidence i suppose isn't it yes i mean i like studies that focus more on health rather than weight loss it seems like yes um when you talk about the healthy diet obviously you come in, into a balance where you'll have the weight that your body has to have in a way so mm. obviously you can have a a very bad omnivore diet which is known as the you know the western diet or something like it 
standard diet. You can also be a unhealthy vegan. You can all day eat sweet um, sweets that are vegan, Oreos and French fries, and you know that will not make you healthy. So. The only thing I would say is, yeah, it's good that these studies are out, but it, I like the ones that focus really on the quality of the life you're going to have and how healthy you will be so you can enjoy your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I've got to say, I, I did smile at the hypothesis that the Sarah Harrington from Alchemy Training and Nutrition said that perhaps people were just losing weight because they didn't know what to eat. Because my experience of going vegan in 2010 was immediately losing weight. And then as soon as I found that bourbon biscuits were vegan, I put it all back on again. So I, I think that genuinely might have been something that people went through back in the day, probably less so now, because there's it's, it's a bit more obvious what to eat. There's, there's ready-made stuff everywhere, isn't there? But interesting yeah. story, nonetheless. Sh- should we move on? Yes. It's time for the last story of our new section. And it's the one Anthony has been waiting for. Oh, it sure is, Richard. From PR Newswire, Green Science Alliance... Great name. Green Science Alliance developed plant-based vegan gel nails. Woohoo! Just in time for Christmas. So the Green Science Alliance Co. Limited have developed plant-based vegan gel nails with the ReSoil trademark. The brand name ReSoil originates from the concept of developing cosmetic products which returns back to the soil by biodegradation. This time, gel nails were made from plants so that they can be called vegan gel nails. Now, there are a few vegan nail polish products in the world already, but one would typically not see vegan gel nails. Now, this company is going further in that they are trying to replace all the petroleum-based chemicals with natural biomass-based chemicals. Resoil nail cosmetic products are sold on their company shopping website, and this and the developed vegan gel nails should be sold from the end of this year or early next year. It's it's great news, and it's it's one of those things. I mean, we we probably don't cover it enough on the show, like the kind of cosmetic side of things and of, of veganism. I mean, when I looked into it, there's all sorts of horrid stuff that's being used in nail polish and, and varnishes and things like that from all sorts of random bits of animal like beavers anal glands and fish bladders and all sorts of things like that you just think who who first discovered that 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 could help a nail polish but i mean the the conclusion has got to be it's it's brilliant that um we're finding plant-based ways of doing this now you know anthony i i'm not sure what uh gel nails are used for but I've, I'm intrigued now, so I'll certainly do some research and find out about the brand or, and about what's used for. So, yeah, really interesting. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. At the next time we're recording together, I have got a vegan gel nail quiz for you. Okay, I'm going to com- compile it in the next few weeks because you've said you're going to do some research on gel nails, so I'm going to take you at your word. Is there any vegan glitter? Oh, of course. All the vegan glitter you want. <laughs> Anyway, we are falafeling on. That brings us to the end of our 10 news stories covered. So before we head to the second half of our show and discuss the Veganuary film, a question to the enough of the falafel community out there listening. What are your thoughts on this week's news? Have the meat industry finally lost their bottle with this story about more Brits wanting turkey than nut roast? Is it time for Canada to recognise veganism as a protected belief? And will you be getting your hands on, or indeed under, some vegan gel nails. Is there anything we've missed or, in fact, got completely wrong? Let us know your opinions. 
Indeed, we'd love to hear from you and just a reminder, if you spot news or articles that you think would catch our interest, get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram or TikTok where you can get little sneak previews on the news we're covering in each episode. Give us a follow. Come on, it's nearly Christmas. This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire & Flow Coffee Roasters. And they're such great people. They're offering all Enough of the Falafel listeners a cheeky 10% off orders on their online store when using the code Falafel10. That's Falafel, the number 10. Fire & Flow, a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswold with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Yeah, they're a vegan-founded company too. They're run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil, and they specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. For the wholesale part of their operations, they work with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering, with free barista training and full technical support included. The products themselves are the result of their passion for working with skilled and ethical-minded farmers who produce the highest quality beans. Fire and Flow then roast them to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester, which you can visit at any time, book onto one of their barista courses or roastery tours via their website, fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. While you're there, you can check out the beautiful, fully vegan coffee shop on site. I've been there myself. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's open seven days a week from nine till three. The last time I went, it was a Sunday afternoon. It's glorious. It's just a fab place to hang out and feel good about life. Give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest at Fire and Flow Coffee. And for those online orders, remember the code exclusively for our brilliant Enough of the Falafel community. That is Falafel10. 10. 10 is 1 and 0. So Falafel10. Welcome back, everyone. Now, we have watched the Veganuary new short film. It's about 20 minutes long. It's called It'll Never Catch On, and it is celebrating the 10-year anniversary, or birthday, if you like, of the Veganuary movement, the Veganuary charity that was formed late 2013. Now, the short film is available on YouTube. We will, as you might have guessed, put a link in the show notes so that you can watch it too, or maybe you've already watched it. Now, the question that we want to ask is, is Veganuary the single biggest pro-vegan influence of the last 10 years? But before we grapple with that question, and in a sense, the answer is it doesn't matter because it's, it's doing good either way. But before we get to that, we just wanted to review the, the film itself. So like I say, it's freely available on YouTube as well as Veganuary's website. And it covers a very short Potter's history obviously t with time constraints, of the last 10 years of the Veganuary movement. So it, it covers how it, it starts off, its inception, and then how it's grown, some of the challenges that they've faced along the way, countries it's expanded into, companies that have become involved, and I guess an eye to the future at the end. Now, Rich, it's, it's fair to say, before we get into any discussion about this film, we're both big fans of the Veganuary movement and the Veganuary charity as a whole, aren't we? Yes, we are. I mean, 
10 years ago, we didn't hear anything. We didn't know about Veganuary. Um, you'd ask people just seven years ago, I'd say. And it wasn't that obvious, or maybe someone was interested, but it's really taken off. And I think it's fair to say that they've amassed a, a long pool of a lot of followers. And mm. it's um, recognised not only in the UK, but internationally. So, yeah, it's a fair assumption. Yeah, absolutely. That said, I don't think either of us were particularly impressed by the film as a whole. There were, I, I think we can both pick out positives from it, but there were also some bits that weren't weren't great or maybe missed some opportunities is that fair to say like what what would your be what would your sort of headline critique of the of the film be so it was interesting to know how it all started i really enjoyed it um i genuinely didn't know how it started i found it very interesting um and how they navigated those first years um and just by i wouldn't say chance but the fact that Tesco mentioned on a tweet Veganuary that was kind of a huge moment for them because it was this giant corporation acknowledging just uh, a few people that were starting Veganuary at the time. So that was very interesting. I really enjoyed it. The rest of the short video or the short film or documentary or I don't know how to name it, but yeah, the 20 minute long footage is a bit like I'm trying to find the word to describe it but it would be like showcasing Veganuary in a way. I thought it came across as quite corporate actually. I could imagine if you went to work for Veganuary it's the sort of film they'd show you on the first day once they've given you your key fob and your lanyard and taken your emergency uh, contact details then they show you this 20 minute film. It it was a bit cheesy and I I thought my, my, my main critique of it would be that it was quite superficial. And actually, though it was only 20 minutes long, and though, you know, you've got to make difficult calls as to what you put in the film, actually, we've watched 20-minute films this year for the pod, like the um, Nowhere to Run Slaughterhouse Workers documentary. 20 minutes is a long enough time if you're selective. And I think what it seems to me is they make it made a judgment call on, let's get loads of people on here. Let's get all the celebrities, let's get all the different companies. I mean, they had people from Burger King, Asda, Wagamama, like all these companies had representatives in this video saying, oh yeah, Veganuary is great, it's made a massive impact. And I just felt, if if you removed all of those ambassadors for these different corporate giant companies, you could probably have given a bit more of an insight into how the charity started and what some of the challenges were because they they touched upon some challenges didn't they at one point there was sort of there was um, one employee who was saying oh gosh something went wrong in 2019 and it was awful it was like my life was ending there was a load of stress but we never really found out what that was and actually I hear what you're saying Rich we kind of got an insight as to how the company started but I would have liked to have seen more so I I think I think maybe if they'd have gone deeper into a few things I would have preferred it and they could have left a lot of it out. But I, I mean, it was still inspiring. Don't get me wrong. It was still inspiring because it started from nothing. It was a, a, a charity and an endeavour that people were working on whilst working full-time jobs at the same time. And it's now become this this massive thing that's synonymous with veganism. So, you know, it was still inspiring. You've hit the nail there. I was going to say, as you are mentioning now, 
that it's kind of a motivational or inspirational video rather than explaining what uh, veganuary is. It seems like it explains the American dream, but in the UK and how anyone can do anything and mm. how from two people that decided that they were going to do this and call it veganuary, how two people can grow an idea to be international and to be mainstream. And I think that's the biggest takeaway of the video, if I'm honest. Um, mm. Obviously, it talks about animals and it talks um, that the aim of veganuary obviously, obviously is to save animals, to help animals, to get people to go vegan. But for me, the takeaway is how anyone can do anything and an idea can become mainstream. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I was lucky enough to meet Matthew Glover, one, one of the pair who, who formed Veganuary. I met him about 18 months ago. And what was really interesting is that then he came across as this incredible, knowledgeable, multifaceted business person that you know knows about investment. And he just started VFC. Um, when I met him and you know he, he came across as so accomplished and yet actually this this film shows that 10 years ago he was a double glazing salesperson so it, it just shows how a person can transform as well and you know his 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 partner has been on the journey and and been equally as influential but just that one example of my goodness like yeah, like you say, Rich, anything is possible. And and if you look at it now, I mean, we'll get on to the, maybe let's move on to it now, that the impact of Veganuary. But I think if you did a survey in this country and said to most people, like just ev everyday people on the street, when did you first hear about veganism? I reckon Veganuary would be people's biggest answer or that would be the that would be the that would be the highest category if you like you know obviously people have vegan next door neighbors and brothers and cousins and and things like that but veganuary has really shot it into the spotlight hasn't it it has and it would be interesting to have some data on different countries like i believe in the uk most vegans would say oh i know about veganism because of veganuary i wonder in the us if people know about veganism because of peter and their ads so mm, it would yeah. be interesting to have all this data i know in spain for example veganuary was not a big thing until well i don't know if it is nowadays we know by the video that only two countries have never adhered to veganuary one being, I think it was North Korea, and the other one was, funny enough, the Vatican. Uh, in Spain, probably, there's other platforms um, like Animal Justice, which is why people know veganism. And mm. animal sanctuaries, especially in Spain, do a very, a very big effort to put things out on Instagram and to go to promote uh, animal right marches and and these things so i i would feel that that would be interesting but certainly in the uk veganuary you'd say uh, the majority of vegans or people that have gone vegan within the last four years let's say mm. they knew about veganuary or surely unless it's word of mouth yeah it yeah. would be they would have heard about it i mean why why do you think it's been so successful because it's there's no question it's been successful i I've, i don't think i've met anybody i can't think of any argument against it being a successful movement what what do you think 
it is that has really propelled it as as well as it has been propelled i think the main reason it's because it's not a change in your life forever but it's just to try it for a month when you know you're not giving up on your life but you just uh giving a month to try something it makes it uh, a lot more easier for anyone to try it i mean many vegans that i know at least decided at some point that they wanted to align with new values and therefore thought i'm going to go vegan for whatever reason could be ethics environment whatever when you hear all environmental groups for example what they're asking you and they don't have to be vegan they could be uh, environmental for fossil fuels what they ask people to do is change their lifestyle and there's always a barrier there because there's someone telling that what you're doing is not good enough and therefore you should change one your values and you should align your uh, conduct or your actions with those values that's hard effort for most people while mm. if you're saying oh just try one month what what about new year's resolution just go vegan for one month just try it doesn't yeah. really matter if you don't succeed give it a go that's more appealing you're not asking people to change you're asking people to try and i think yeah that's and and it's that new year element of it too i mean it's it's genius really isn't it and it's the perfect storm of i want to be a better person i want to give these things a go and and you're combining that with a social justice a compassionate and let's face it a lot of people are, are, are doing it for health reasons in january to start with anyway or at least that's part of their motivation so it's it's just a perfect blend of these things and i think if we can reflect on that that you know you've got this perfect storm and and two clearly very persuasive people who've then enlisted the help of other other brilliant people which has grown and grown if, if they can do that, it makes me anyway think, well, how can we better target our efforts in other areas too? Because it's, for me, it really is the strategic timing and way that the message is cached that really helps it, doesn't it? And um, if we if we could just wave a magic wand and do that for all areas of our advocacy, I think we would see an even more effective effective movement do you do you think rich there are any drawbacks for veganuary yes i mean let me say up front that i say with this with the most of utmost respect for people that have done something really successful and helped millions of animals the drawback would be that precisely what i said before that saying it's okay if you do it for one month. Now, I know this is controversial but what, because what we're saying here is we want people to try vegan and go vegan, but I see it a little bit as a meatless Monday. On the one hand, I really like the idea of people not eating meat one day a week, like I like people going vegan one month a week. Um, hope so <laughs> uh, i mean that would be ideal wouldn't it <laughs> that would be ideal it would, if everyone could go ideal. vegan <laughs> for one month a one week, month we'd be a laughing. Year. i know however <laughs> it seems reducitarian and there's no guarantee of the percentage of people that once having tried either veganuary or meatless monday will continue and there's the moral element of saying it's okay just to give up one month a year for some people or only mondays on okay. eating animals. I'm, 
Can that I would challenge be my what, I'm going to challenge what you've said because I agree with what you're saying in principle, and I think in theory that's a sound argument. I'd be very interested in talking to people who have done veganuary and they just do it for a year. Oh, geez, I fall into the same trap as you. A year, a month. They they just do it for one month a the year. The veganual. <laughs> the veganual, yes. Yeah. So I do it veganually. I reckon if you took people who have just done it once or have just done it a month, a year, I think in a parallel universe, those people, in a parallel universe where veganuary doesn't exist, I reckon those people don't do it at all. I don't think there's anyone who would be doing it for longer but they dip out on the 1st of February because they're like, oh, it's not Veganuary anymore, I don't have to do it. I think those people probably wouldn't have been doing it in the first place and Veganuary has at least got them to do it for a twelfth of the year when perhaps they wouldn't have done it at all. Of course we don't know and of course you know, we've got to be wary of, of, of selling a, a lifestyle that you can dip in and out of whereas you and I and a lot of our listeners would see it as you know a complete moral framework that guides the rest of your life but as you've said like that's a hard sell just just saying to someone hey it's uh, it's near the end of november do you do you fancy completely changing your life on the 1st of january a lot of people are going to be skeptical aren't they so i think we can see why it's a uh, a one month dip your toe in see what you think but like you say there you know there there, there is a a risk that we're kind of um reducing what what we're hoping for people to achieve yes let me say quickly that in any by any means i wanted to criticize veganuary i think they're doing mm. a wonderful job okay yeah. what i'm saying is if we went to america and we said keeping the comparison okay what about gunless sunday <laughs> it's okay if you know six days a week you shoot you carry uh, guns and all this why don't you um, just do Gunless Sunday? That raises ethical questions. Now, I, what I've got I to mean be honest. Is... I've got to be honest. Sorry to interrupt. I think that'd be great. I think that'd be great. And and that's in that instance, that's the starting point. If if you could get people to start going without guns on Sundays in America, I think that would probably get the conversation started, wouldn't it? And of course, it's not enough, but it's it gets the conversation started. It gets the ball rolling because. These causes need the ball rolling. At the moment, the ball is stationary. It's not It's not happening. And I think that was the case with veganism. Like, the ball was moving very, very, very slowly. And Veganuary has got it moving quickly. And, yeah, if we want to... <laughs> we'll save this for our gun control podcast. But, like, to get that conversation going, maybe it needs some gimmicky things that aren't perfect. But, I don't know. Sorry, Richard, I interrupt you. Feel free to shoot me, because it's not Sunday. I can't wait for Monday. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> no, but uh, it was just a comparison. Uh, mm. I do understand that we'll get people talking. And I think at the end of the day, what we want is people to try things. We know that people, the vast majority of people, will not change unless there's a very good reason. Unfortunately, ethics seems not to be a good enough reason. I'm a bit skeptical with health. I don't think people really take health that seriously and the environment it seems such a big task that probably mm. trying is the best way because you lose fear of the unknown by trying something and I, that's one thing i wanted to praise after my criticism is mm. that by trying one month you lose fear that you'll die by malnourishment 
after having had some lettuce, spinach, and a couple of beans. So I think big yeah. credit for that. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really good point. To be fair, it um, breaks down the stigma, makes it a real thing, doesn't it? To to finish, then um, I'm gonna ask two questions of you at once, and then I'll I'll try and answer them myself. So the first one is that the title of our of our discussion, I guess. So do you think veganuary has been the single biggest pro vegan influence of the last ten years? Obviously, it doesn't matter whether it is or it isn't. It's just a sort of academic question. But is is there been anything that we think has been bigger? And as a follow up question, what do you think the future of veganuary might hold? Do you want to get the ball rolling on that, Rich? And then I'll I'll follow up myself. Okay. First question, if it's not the biggest, it's up there. As I say, if from a UK perspective, I do think it's been the biggest. Internationally, I do not have enough information to analyse that. But surely, it has been up there. The second question was, what's the future of Veganuary? Yeah. Um, well, I think it will keep growing until veganism is no longer something that deserves a month if that makes sense yeah it's an it's an interesting that one if if i can come in and answer the question myself i mean for me it's an absolute no-brainer i i i cannot think of anything that has been a a bigger influence positive influence on the vegan movement in the last 10 years feel like i've been quite vividly involved in the vegan movement in the last 10 years and i've sort of lived and breathed it to, to an extent and um veganuary every year has just been massive so definitely can't think of anything that's been bigger in terms of the future for it like you say there's going to come a point where it's no longer needed hopefully sooner rather than later i wonder how it it gets replaced or or kind of what would cause that and I, i think in a sense my first thought is that it would be the adoption of more government led and government introduced schemes suggestions or 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 things like that because i i think that is possibly possibly the next step for veganery obviously we're assuming a a straight line or a continually positive trajectory for those things and of course there could be big big setbacks that mean that veganery is needed for a very long time and 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 lots more too but i think actually we're starting to see countries we've seen denmark a couple of weeks ago bring in plant-based guidelines germany this week has done a similar thing so i think the more that we see countries and organizations like the eu and obviously cop 28 has been a bit of a circus but we're seeing some progress with with the guidelines and suggestions to do with plant-based eating i think those kind of things are, are going to be what surpasses veganuary but there's still a lot of work for it to do in a lot of countries and actually given its track record from the last 10 years i i can think of very little that that does a better job so so good luck to them in in all their endeavors and my partner and i are going to try this year and follow the veganuary meal planner in in january we're going to sort of try and live it like a like somebody coming to it for the first time so we'll if we manage to do that we'll, we'll keep you up to date with it but um certainly loads of great resources loads of inspiration and, and great role models so uh good for veganuary and happy 10th birthday let's leave things there shall we so a question for everyone listening now do you think veganuary is the single biggest pro-vegan influence of the last 10 years have you seen the film 
have we maybe been a bit harsh at points in our assessment of it and do you feel inspired to encourage others to participate in veganuary 2024 enough of the falafel at gmail.com is our email address we're also on instagram tiktok and facebook at enough of the falafel Right, we're almost at the end of the episode now. Thanks, Anthony, for your brief summary, and uh, <laughs> thanks for being in this in this episode. No problem, and thank you too, Richard. Been brilliant to have you back. I've I missed our weekly chat last week. Um, as wonderful, of course, as as Josie, Julie, and Kate were. If I can, just while we're on the topic of veganuary this week, we have got our going vegan series that will be airing three episodes a week throughout January. Each episode is going to be an interview with somebody about their vegan journey, the few weeks and months beforehand, their transition, how they found it. And the idea is that that will be brilliant for people who are trying veganuary themselves, as well as anyone. It's a great selection of people and uh, it's been great to hear their stories. So make sure you look out for that in January. Yes, and we've got some more special shows for the holiday season, haven't we? Yes, absolutely. We, we've given ourselves a week off recording live next week. However, there will be a show airing on Monday, which is Christmas Day. It's been pre-recorded. We have got the big vegan quiz of the year, 2023, with John, Paul, Chantel and Ella. And then airing on New Year's Eve, there is the 2023 News Review recorded by myself and Kate. So that will be coming out on the 31st of December. And then we've got, instead of Vegan Week, we've got Vegan Fortnight, which will be released on about the 29th or 30th of December with a review of next week's news and the week after, so the last two weeks of the year. So lots of special shows, lots of enough of the falafeling going on for you to listen to. Brilliant, I can't wait. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel from us this week. Thank you everyone for listening. I've been Richard. And I've been Anthony. And this has been episode 14 of Vegan Week.